0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bradley Lectures podcast. I'm Tal Fortgang. It's the first week in July. That means Independence Day is this week. And to our one listener in Manitoba, I want to wish you a happy Canada Day. And in honor of Independence Day and the Declaration of Independence and this spirit of the week, we wanted to talk about Thomas Jefferson this week, the author of the Declaration of Independence. And to do so... We've got Nicole Penn here. She's a uh, researcher in the office of Lynn V. Cheney, where she studies the Virginia dynasty. She's been doing intensive reading and preparation for this very podcast for the last two years? Three years. Three years. Three years of uh, preparation on Washington and Jefferson and Madison and Monroe. She's got a master's degree from Thomas Jefferson's alma mater, the College of William and Mary. She is an alumna, an esteemed alumna, of Thomas Jefferson's beloved University of Virginia. She interned at Jefferson's Little Mountain at Monticello. Uh, I just learned what Monticello meant this weekend when I was in Charlottesville with my family and we visited Monticello. It's a really fascinating exhibit, and uh, I'm sorry that we missed your uh, tenure there, Nicole. You probably could have uh, taught us some things that our, our guide didn't, uh, didn't quite get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was all very enlightening, and we 're thrilled to have you here to talk about a very complex character, mm-hmm. uh, the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson
1: yeah, thanks for having me here. I have spent the last three years uh snooping through jefferson 's correspondence, so you know the work of historians is sometimes um something that is. That works really well if you love gossip and you love getting into everyone's business. So um, I have uh, I feel like I've gotten to know Jefferson very well over the course of these past three years.
0: Well, for just a moment, we're going to gossip about uh, the Democratic Party, <laughs> yeah. which uh, many have traced to to Thomas Jefferson, although the the development is is not always uh, quite so clean.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and we're obviously going to be talking about Gordon Woods' lecture from uh, January 1995 which he called Thomas Jefferson, and the idea of equality. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the first ironies that he brings up in this lecture is what has become of the legacy of Thomas Jefferson, especially in contradistinction to the legacy of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, The two of them obviously squabbled over what kind of country the United States was meant to be. And for much of history, the Republicans claimed Hamilton uh, as their sort of party progenitor, at least before Abraham Lincoln. And conservatives seem to like Hamilton's uh, idea of what the United States was meant to be, while Democrats claim Thomas Jefferson as their own. Now, in recent years, obviously, in in uh, elite culture in particular with the, the musical Hamilton, mm-hmm. uh, we've seen a bit of a switch here uh, as... Uh, Democrats have taken De- Jefferson's name off their annual dinner mm-hmm. uh, and embraced Hamilton instead. What's what's going on?
1: Yeah. So um, the division that you had outlined originally really comes up with uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who helps to save Hamilton from obscurity back at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. And then you see, as Gordon Wood will note in his lecture, that it's really FDR that kind of claims Jefferson... And and Jackson as um, the the leaders or you know the founders of the Democratic Party, and Gordon Wood will say that you know he that doesn't seem to make much sense because Jefferson was this small government guy who was um, okay with letting you know trying to remove government intervention from the the local sphere. He really believed that government was the purpose of government was to you know deal with uh, foreign issues. But it is interesting. I mean, one of the, the big stumbling blocks for the modern Democratic Party is, of course, Jefferson's association with slavery. And so you've seen, um, given this intensive focus on this contradiction in Jefferson's life, that um, Democrats have actually started looking for other founders that they can claim who perhaps have a, a better moral, um, a, a better they work better with the morality of the the progressive wing of the party, I mean, and so Hamilton was staunchly um anti slavery and um he was an you know immigrant um manuel Miranda did a very interesting job with it, making those that connection and hammering that as a theme of his musical. But in doing so, uh, the Democrats have kind of lost sight of, you know, the work that Jefferson particularly – it's always important to talk about Jefferson in time slices. You know, Jefferson in 1785 is very different from Jefferson in 1814. But the Jefferson in 1785 was actually really concerned with with, uh, inequality of – of uh, social inequality. Um, he really, you know, something that we can discuss a little bit later is his notion of inequality is tied up a little bit with independence. And, you know, one of the the things that prevent one from being indep- independent is um, lacking uh opportunity to own property and be self-sufficient. And there's actually um, some very interesting letters that Jefferson writes to Madison in the 1780s, where he talks about, you know, he's in Europe at that time, and he's seeing the social inequality there, um, brought on by, you know, the concentration of wealth in the hands of few. And he really, you know, he says that he he seems to insinuate that government might actually be a solution to that problem. Um, there's a quote that it is clear that the laws of property have extended as to violate natural right and that um, government could actually help to redistribute property in some, and really land in some nominal way. So it is interesting that the Democrats have forgotten these, this, interesting, this interesting bit of Jefferson's thought that actually would probably realign well with their own views today.
0: It's interesting that you bring up the uh, redistributionist yeah. bent that's inherent there. I didn't think we'd we'd get to talking about Thomas Paine uh, in this <laughs> yes. conversation, but that's that is uh, fairly mm-hmm. resonant. Wood's central thesis is that Jefferson's idea of equality is a little different from the way we think about equality in a religious sense of right, equality before God or equality before the law. Even although I think that's certainly part of Jefferson's idea. It's really about an equal moral instinct. It's about an inherent moral worth. What examples have we seen in Jefferson's personal life or in his diplomatic behavior that sort of reinforce that idea, Mm -hmm. at least from your examination of the evidence? And again, Jefferson's a man of many contradictions. Mm -hmm. What examples are there? I I think slavery is the obvious one. Uh, But beyond that, I'm sure there are more of inconsistency. Yeah. In, in Jefferson's life,
1: yeah. So this focus on the moral sense and something that Gordon Wood touches on um, is, um, you know, there there is a long tradition in Western thought of, you know, and this is really tied to Christianity, the equality of all souls, and then equality before, before the law. And what happens in the Enlightenment is there's kind of this fusion of, you know spirit and body. its no. You can no longer really distinguish. Um, Lynn Hunt wrote this very interesting book that I read in graduate school called Inventing Human Rights, came about 10 years ago. And she really looks at the proliferation of epistolary novels and really prison and torture accounts in the 18th century during the Enlightenment, which um, the epistolary novels usually focused on some unfortunate female heroine. Prison torture accounts looked at um, unfair applications of punitive uh, justice. Uh, Voltaire and particularly um, focuses on the case of this French Protestant who is, you know, horribly tortured for his beliefs. And um, what Lynn Hunt argues is that this really awakens um, the concept of empathy, particularly amongst Enlightenment thinkers that are getting more critical of religion and see less of a distinction between the mind and the spirit. So Jefferson is, you know, bathing in all of this. And so this really leads him to view equality when he says that all men are created equal, as would uh, points out he's really talking about all humans have this uh, this moral sense this ability to understand other humans this empathy um this is this ability to distinguish right from wrong and it almost you know it's it's an interesting conflation of of the metaphysical with what Jefferson would call what's natural and, and there's kind of a different view of nature in his time period than um and we view nature now. We kind of view nature as this amoral, you know, uh, thing that you can you can test and you can quantify. But you know, there's no real morality associated with it. But Jefferson, for him, nature is um, pushing human beings to be the the, the the highest versions of themselves that they can be. So. Um, so, Gordon Wood will point. will talk a lot, and this is very relevant about Jefferson's own frustrations with his upbringing, um, the fact that he lived in an aristocratic society, Virginia, particularly was far more aristocratic than um, than New England. Um, the fact that he was perhaps sneered upon because of his father's um, lack of social pedigree, despite the fact that his father had, you know, was a wealthy man, but he wasn't educated. Um, he had trouble finding locating his ancestry in Europe. Um, and so that, combined with the Enlightenment education that he's getting, um, really leads him to focus on equality as this as the this, um, this shared moral sense that all humans have. Um, one of the interesting places where this crops up in, in Jefferson's correspondence is when he's talking with a, a French correspondent about Native Americans. And um, Jefferson goes to great lengths to explain that you know Native Americans are not inferior to white people. They are equals. They have... Um, he, his own experience with them, um, he, he has great respect for their oratory, is proof of their equality, proofs of their genius, and this, you know, shared moral sense that all humans have. He also, once he becomes president, um, institutes this law in, not a law, but it's, it's something that he institutes in his social gatherings, um, which actually upsets one of the British ministers at the time who expects Jefferson to go out of his way to place him at a seat of honor to escort his wife to the dinner table. Um, and Jefferson refuses to do that. He just grabs, you know, the hand of the nearest lady that he sees and everyone gets to choose their spot. And it, it really creates a, a diplomatic um, a bit of diplomatic chaos. But Jefferson defends himself and he says that, you know, in social settings, all men are equal. And this is, again, digging into this. He, and he, he specifies, you know, no matter your rank, no matter your occupation, no matter your gender, um, we all have the shared moral sense. And in, in, in the social sphere, um, particularly, he wants to establish that as a norm. And so and, and so, those are examples of, of where he's really um, adhering to this view of course, we then get to the issue of slavery, which is, you know, uh, very controversial. Um, and the the unique thing, the, the important thing for Americans to remember is that the founders all understood that slavery was an evil. It wasn't something that was justified. Um, there's a, a real uh, – there's there's a difference between, you know, the 18th century and the 19th century with the ways in which these, these things are um, codified in the discourse. But – Unfortunately, Jefferson is a man who can live with many contradictions. He's very good at compartmentalizing things. And, you know, related to his discussion of Native Americans, he even goes on to say and, – and he kind of articulates this in different ways both in his infamous notes on the state of Virginia and in his personal correspondence where he suspects that the, a condition of slavery has, you know, put – Slaves in a position where they cannot exert that moral sense that he that he views as being you know uh, an integral element of equality um and that he hopes that if you know slavery were was um, eliminated, which is something he talks about, he never really makes good motions about uh t- t- to help to end slavery, that these proofs of their genius would rise up again and in fact, one of the little discussed um one of his little-discussed solutions for slavery, and this isn't this happens in the wake of the Missouri Compromise, he actually argues that extending slavery would, in a way, help to am- ameliorate or eliminate the institution by deconcentrating um, slaves and then giving them opportunities to own land. And this again ties into this notion of you know property ownership gives you the independence to free yourself from constraints that prevent you from exercising this moral sense. So all very complicated, all probably unsatisfying to a lot of people. But, you know, there is some thread of of consistency even in, in the inconsistencies.
0: Some very helpful context and depth. And with that, we're going to pass it over to Professor of History at Brown University, Gordon Wood. Nicole and I will be back in just a few minutes. But for now, enjoy the January 1995 lecture, Thomas Jefferson and the Idea of Equality.
2: Well, I spent uh, last year uh, in Washington, and it's very pleasant to be back. Washington, of course, was a place that uh, Thomas Jefferson never liked or put much stock in. To put it bluntly, he had very little faith in the capacities of the federal government to do much of anything, at least not after he had left the presidency. Where we directed from Washington when to sow and when to reap, he wrote in his autobiography in 1821, we should soon want bread. But Washington, being a city that has no sense of irony, has ignored all these insults and has honored Jefferson with a magnificent memorial that is rivaled by only those of Washington and Lincoln. Washington officials seem to have a special place in their heart for Jefferson, perhaps because they know so little of what he believed in. Jefferson is so important to President William Jefferson Clinton that last year he and Mrs. Clinton held a dinner in Jefferson's honor, to which my wife and I were invited I hoped it might be a dinner for eight, but it turned out to be a dinner for 180. It was held on April 12th, the day before Jefferson's 251st birthday. Apparently, the administration wanted to celebrate Jefferson's 250th birthday, birthday but forgot about it until the last moment and just got it in before Jefferson turned 251. At any rate, the president's dinner was a grand, grand occasion. There were no lengthy speeches. The president introduced an impersonator of Jefferson, who who neither looked nor sounded like Jefferson looked or presumably sounded. The president seemed a little out of sorts, perhaps because of a gaffe that, that earlier I had committed in the receiving line. My wife and I were near the end of the long line of 180 guests whose hands President and Mrs. Clinton were relentlessly shaking. When it came my turn to shake the president's hand with about a dozen or so guests to go, I decided I would say something uh, other than the usual, how do you do? Feeling bad for him with all those hands to shake, I said to him, well, you don't have much longer. (laughs) (laughs) President Clinton held his commemorative dinner because he believes that he, he has a special kinship with Jefferson, for his name, if for no other reason, but also because all politicians seem to want to get right with Jefferson. Although conservatives and Republicans have usually made Hamilton their hero, many of them have increasingly found affinities with Jefferson. George Will is called Jefferson the man of the millennium. Massachusetts Governor Weld describes himself as a Jeffersonian. So did Ronald Reagan. He called upon Jefferson in order to justify his attempts to reduce the size of the federal government. Indeed, he urged us all to pluck a flower from Thomas Jefferson's life and wear it in our soul forever. But during the past 60 years or so, it has been the Democrats that have made the most of Jefferson. FDR was the one who captured Jefferson for the Democrats. Of course, it was no easy task to turn a man who hated the federal government and believed in states' rights into a symbol of the New Deal. But the Democrats pulled it off. Roosevelt put Jefferson into many of his speeches. In 1938, he personally manipulated to have Jefferson replace Lincoln on the three-cent stamp which was the carrier of nearly every first-class letter in, in those days. And as an administration saw to it that Jefferson was taken off the scarce $2 bill where the Republicans had relegated him and put onto the very popular nickel. And in Jefferson's bicentennial year, 1943, Roosevelt dedicated the Jeffersonian memorial, which certainly was the high point of, of uh, this country's celebration of Jefferson. If you've been to the memorial recently, you'll recall that on the four walls of the temple, there are some stirring quotations from Jefferson. Nothing, however, about minimal government, states' rights, or the fear of executive power. Even today, Jefferson has a special appeal for for Democrats. Several years ago, in in February 1990, to be exact, two other historians and I uh, received a call from Congressman Steny Hoyer who is chairman of the Democratic Caucus, inviting us to address the annual meeting of the caucus, which is composed, as you know, of Democratic congressmen and congresswomen who sit in the House of Representatives. Every year, apparently, the members of the caucus retreat to a secluded hotel or or resort for a couple of days, hold committee meetings, and plan party strategy. The caucus wanted three historians, each to talk about one of the Democratic Party's favorite presidents. Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, and Franklin Roosevelt. We were given 10 minutes each. I was to lead off and talk about Jefferson, the presumed founder of the Democratic Party. Now, it was no easy task summing up Jefferson in 10 minutes, especially to modern Democratic congressmen who have somewhat different ideas about government, especially the federal government, from those Jefferson had. I tried to get the the members of the caucus in a good mood by telling them that in Jefferson's day, The Democratic caucus, they, the Democratic caucus, would not just meet to issue committee reports to each other, but would actually nominate the Democratic presidential candidate. That's the part they liked best. But then I had to tell them, these Democrats, about Jefferson's ideas of minimal government, that he fervently believed that the best government was the one that governed least, that he disliked all federal taxes, that he had no programs for the cities, that he, in fact, hated all cities, and wanted America not to develop any. I also had to tell them that he hated the Supreme Court and was more of a strict constructionist than Robert Bork, that he feared all governmental power, and often suggested that government was only a device by which the few attempt to rob, cheat, and oppress the many. Probably the Jeffersonian principle that the 20th century Democratic Party has been able to exploit most effectively has been the concept of equality. But the modern Democratic Party was not the first to do so nor has it been the only group to use the idea of equality. Equality is surely the most exploited and abused idea in American history. And Jefferson, as much as anyone, is the author of that idea. Jefferson's proposition in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, is the most powerful proposition in American history, bar none. Once unleashed by the revolution, The idea of equality tore through American society and culture with awesome force. It became what Herman Melville sardonically called the great god absolute, the center and circumference of all democracy. The spirit of equality, said Melville, did not merely cull the selected champions from the kingly commons, but it spread one royal mantle of humanity over all Americans and brought democratic dignity even the arm that wields a pick or drives a spike. Southerners and would-be aristocrats in the North vainly tried to argue that Jefferson could never have meant that all men were literally equal and that they all had equal rights. But that was precisely what most Americans, at least in the North, came to believe. And some came to say not just white men, but black men had these equal rights. And some eventually went so far as to say, And not just men, but women as well had these equal rights. Within decades following the Declaration of Independence, the United States became the most egalitarian nation in the history of the world. And I believe it remains so today, regardless of its great disparities of wealth. Indeed, the idea of equality continues to lie at the center of most of our current public debates, at the heart of all of our talk of affirmative action, bell curves, and defenses of elitism. Both conservatives like Wilmore Kendall and liberals like Gary Wills have argued that Abraham Lincoln rescued the Declaration of Independence from relative insignificance and made its proposition that all men are created equal the basis of American nationhood. There is no doubt that Lincoln believed that Jefferson's proposition on equality was the central tenet of American culture. But Lincoln did not make equality the foundation principle of American culture. Equality was already well established in American consciousness, at least in the North, which is why Southerners like John C. Calhoun spent so much time in the decades of the 1830s and 40s trying to prove that the Declaration's proposition that all men are created equal was the most false and dangerous of all political errors, even though it was a proposition repeated daily from tongue to tongue as an established and incontrovertible truth. Now what I want to suggest this evening is that Lincoln was not wrong in attributing to Jefferson and his revolutionary colleagues this idea of equality. There are very good historical reasons for making Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence the source of our doctrine of equality, perhaps even as it exists in its exaggerated and overdrawn forms in the late 20th century. Jefferson, of course, neither invented nor originated the idea of equality in 1776, as he quite rightly reminded his countrymen he never intended to say anything original in the Declaration, but only, as he said, to place before mankind the common sense of the subject in terms so plain and firm as to command their assent. Most of the revolutionary leaders talked about equality. John Adams wrote in 1766, a full decade before the Declaration, that all men were born equal. The idea of equality was part and parcel of the Revolution from the outset. But why? Why was equality so important to Jefferson and to this revolutionary generation? Of course, equality under the law was long a part of their English heritage. 18th century Englishmen prided themselves on the fact that Englishmen, unlike the French, possessed equal rights under the law. In in 1760, Lord Ferrers was hanged for murdering his steward. This seemed a confirmation of English equality under the law. And of course, there was always the long Christian tradition of the equality of all souls in death, if not in life. But the American invocation of equality was new and different from these. It was not just equality under the law and not just the Christian equality of all souls under God. It was the equality in the here and now, in the society of this world. This new meaning of equality as an integral part of the 18th century Enlightenment represented a major and radical shift in Western consciousness. From the very beginning of recorded history, people had simply taken the inequality of society for granted. Now, it's only against this long historical background of the givenness of inequality that we can appreciate the radicalism of Jefferson's claim that all men are created equal.
0: Back here in studio with Nicole Penn, researcher here at the American Enterprise Institute. Now, I want to relate a a quick story from when I was uh, in college many moons ago. Uh, I had a a political philosophy professor kind of sneer at me for suggesting that when a government becomes tyrannical, that the people who are governed only by their own consent have a right to rebel, a legitimate right to rebel. And he kind of sneered at me and he said, well, Thomas Jefferson would certainly agree. Now, I think he's right, but... uh, I'm wondering what the connection between Jefferson's idea of equality, as Wood has been discussing, uh, has to do with that conception of government and that famous quote that the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots
1: and tyrants. Yeah, um, that's, you know, something that... uh, you know Jefferson is gets a front row seat to the French Revolution and while everyone in um the other on the other side of the Atlantic is absolutely horrified by what's happening i mean M- madison also had a very sanguine view but it wasn't the same as jefferson who really thought that this was you know an exciting important thing um he has this um uh, he, he has another quote um, that is later applied to a, a smaller a small rebellion in the United States Shays rebellion um, where he says um, a little bit of rebellion now and then is a good thing um, and it really comes again to this this idea that this this shared um, moral sense this natural equality that we all have means that um, there no one really has an authority to uh, tyrannize others or to control others um, and and I think Jefferson views it as a responsibility of um, equal – humans that share in this in this equal uh, – in this equality to revolt against these individuals that would be suppressing their abilities to exercise this natural equality. So, yeah, and, and it's something that is fairly consistent in his thought at least through the 1790s. Um, so, you know, you, your professor might have sneered at that, but it's something that Jefferson believed uh, quite sincerely, and it stems from this – this understanding of of human nature,
0: so one more quick question before we return to the lecture, and, and that is that Wood, in his lecture, is careful to note that this uh, Jeffersonian idea that all men are created equal uh, is the most powerful proposition of in American history, and it 's the heart of American culture, not government. Have we left that distinction behind, and would Thomas Jefferson make that distinction, or would he Want the two to actually have a, a great deal to do with each other.
1: Um, so I think that, despite not having codified this necessarily in in the same way that you know you would find in the Bill of Rights or in the Constitution, Jefferson definitely believed that culture needed to influence policy. And there's you know two ways that we can look at um, as an example of how he did this. One of them is his support for public education in Virginia. Um, he really believed that having Public schools, uh, universal education, at least to a certain degree for for everyone, was essential to helping humans cultivate and exercise this natural equality that they all had, this moral sense. Um, It was one of those things that would lift the structures that had prevented such um, exercise in previous generations. Um, another example would be the Statute for Religious Freedom, something that he was immensely proud of. Um he, you know it's written on his on his stoom at Monticello and Organized religion was something that Jefferson was deeply skeptical of. He wasn't an atheist. He had a very complicated, um, you know. I I even think that sometimes deist is a very simplistic way of mm-hmm. viewing it. Um, he he believed Jesus Christ existed. He he actually argues that Jesus Christ is one of the figures that helps who, who best exemplified natural equality, moral sense. But he didn't believe that organized religion was the vehicle to lead. Other humans to the same conclusion, in fact, he thought he worried a lot about you know how it would lead people to superstition, and so this the the statute for religious freedom is another policy that he <laughs> implements to help um allow people to exercise their their natural equality so uh, so yeah I, I think culture feeds uh, policy in, in in a modern way uh, Jefferson would see those two things as uh inextricable
0: Nicole and I will be back in just a few minutes to wrap up our discussion of a very complex american hero in some sense american villain perhaps thomas jefferson but for now enjoy the rest of gordon wood's 1995 lecture thomas jefferson and the idea of equality the ancien
2: regime generally assumed that the distinctions between the aristocracy and commoners were natural and that they were usually passed on in the blood this old society did not know about genes and iqs But many people living in that society certainly knew about heredity and inherited characteristics. They knew how to breed plants and animals, and they assumed that humans were bred in the same way. That's why kin, blood, and family counted for so much in this society. It was this belief in blood that made hereditary monarchy and hereditary aristocracy so meaningful to the Ancien regime. Now, it's against this old society and its centuries-old values that Jefferson and his enlightened colleagues launched their revolutionary assault. What made Jefferson's revolution radical was his attempt to substitute for the older social adhesives of kin, blood, and patronage new relationships based on merit and talent. Jefferson, like nearly all of the revolutionary leaders, was the first generation in his family to go to college. And that fact lay behind his feelings against the ascribed statuses of the old society and his radical celebration of achievement. Jefferson always felt the power of genealogy. As a young man of 27, he asked an English correspondent to search the Herald's office in London for the arms of his father's family. It is possible, he said, there may be none. He never forgot the insignificance of his father's ancestry father never went to college, but was a wealthy man, but not cultivated. Although he was not one to let his feelings show, we can sense, even today, beneath the placid surface of his autobiography, written in 1821 at the age of 77, some of his anger at all those Virginians who had prided themselves on their ancestry and had judged men by their family background. In the opening pages of his autobiography, Jefferson tells us that the lineage of his Welsh father was lost in obscurity. He was able to find in Wales only two references to his father's family. His mother, His mother, on the other hand, was a Randolph, probably the most important and distinguished family in all Virginia. The Randolphs, he said, with about as much derision as Jefferson ever allowed himself, traced their pedigree far back in England and Scotland, to which let everyone ascribe the faith and merit he chooses. Perhaps more than anything else, this experience with the Randolph family enabled him, aristocrat that he was, to believe in equality and to identify with the anger felt by common, ordinary folk against the pretensions of an aristocracy. At any rate, he went on in his autobiography to describe his efforts in 1776 in Virginia to bring down that distinct set of families who had used the legal devices of primogeniture and entail to form themselves into what he called a patrician order, distinguished by the splendor and luxury of their establishments. To become a natural aristocrat, one had to acquire the attributes of a natural aristocrat, enlightenment, gentility, and taste. We will never understand the young Jefferson until we appreciate the intensity and the earnestness of his desire to become the most cosmopolitan, the most liberal, the most genteel, and the most enlightened Republican gentleman in all of America. It was almost as if he were out to show the Randolphs what real breeding was about. Through arduous self-cultivation, Jefferson became the very model of an 18th century Republican gentleman, learned and genteel and cultivated, and yet at the same time, sincerely devoted to the idea of equality. Now to Jefferson and the other revolutionary leaders, this equality possessed several layers of, of meaning. It meant, first of all, what we might call equality of opportunity. The revolutionary leaders believed that talent was randomly distributed in the population, not inherited, and that an enlightened society ought to search out and encourage that talent to develop free from the ancestor worship and patronage of the old order. Above all, they wanted a society in which who one's father was, whom one married, and whom one knew would no longer matter. Of course, the founding fathers did not expect the poorest and the least educated men in the society to become its political leaders. They did not expect butchers and cobblers and uneducated farmers to run the government. But they did want a society in which the sons, the sons of butchers or cobblers or uneducated farmers, if they had the talent and acquired the attributes of enlightened leadership by going perhaps to Harvard or Princeton, could, in fact, attain the highest political offices in the land. thus would have an aristocracy of sorts, but it would be, in Jefferson's term, a natural aristocracy, not an artificial one. Now, this juxtaposition of terms that Jefferson uses is, I think, interesting and confusing to us. We today are apt to associate natural with blood and kin, but Jefferson did not. For him and his neoclassical colleagues, nature was not biology, but morality, what ought to be. Although Jefferson believed in a natural aristocracy and was by our lights an unabashed elitist, at the same time, like the other revolutionary leaders, he also believed in a rough equality of condition for a Republican society, with every man an independent property holder. He took for granted that a society with the gross disparities of wealth and the great numbers of landless laborers and dependent people that he uh, witnessed in monarchical France in the 1780s. That kind of society could not ever be Republican. Equality for Jefferson was related to the personal independence of each citizen, which was essential for republicanism. Indeed, his original draft for the Declaration of Independence stated that all men are created free and independent. Men should be equal in that no one of them should be dependent on the will of another and property made this independence possible. Hence his proposal in 1776 that every Virginian be given at least 50 acres of land. Equality became so potent for Americans because it came to mean that everyone was really the same as everyone else, not just at birth, not in talent or property or wealth, and not just in some transcendental religious sense of the equality of all souls. Ordinary Americans came to believe that no one in a basic, down-to-earth and and day-in-and-day-out manner was really better than anyone else. They came to have a sense of self-worth and dignity that allowed them, regardless of their lack of wealth or education, to look others in the eye and treat them as equals and to expect to be treated as equals in return. That was equality as no other people had conceived of it. Indeed, on most things, Jefferson trusted ordinary people far more than he trusted the aristocratic few, even the natural aristocratic few, who he we believed were very apt to become wolves if they could. Unlike the elite, common people were not deceptive or deceitful. They wore their hearts on their sleeves and were sincere. An American Republican world dominated by common folk would enter the seat and dissembling so characteristic of courtiers and monarchies. Let those flatter who fear, he said, it is not an American art. But Jefferson went further. By assuming that ordinary people had personal realities equal to his own, Jefferson, like his revolutionary colleagues, gave birth to perhaps what is best described as the modern humanitarian sensibility, a powerful force that we of the 20th century have inherited and further expanded. He and the other revolutionary leaders shared the liberal premises of Lockean sensationalism, that is, that all men were born equal and that only the environment, working on their senses, made them different. These premises were essential to the growing sense of sympathy for other human creatures felt by enlightened people in the 18th century. Once the liberally educated came to believe that they could control their environment and educate the vulgar and lowly to become something other than what the traditional society had, had, had presumed they were destined to be, then enlightened elites like Jefferson began to expand their sense of moral responsibility for the vice and ignorance they saw in others and to experience feelings of common humanity with them. There was something in each human being, some sort of moral sense or sympathetic instinct that made possible natural compassion and, infec- and affection. Even the lowliest of persons, it was assumed, had this sense of sympathy or moral feeling for for another. Young divinity student and schoolmaster of Sheffield, Massachusetts, Thomas Robbins, recounted in his diary in 1796 the incident of a black boy of about four who asked Robbins about a cut on his thumb. The boy said to him, if I had some plaster, I would give give you some to put on it. Robbins was overwhelmed by the boy's sympathy. He appears to act from the pure dictates of nature without the least cultivation. If in anyone, I think we can see nature in him. The conclusion for Robbins was obvious. Is there not then in human nature a principle of benevolence, he asked. State a moral case to a plowman and a professor, said Jefferson. The plowman will decide it as well and often better than the professor because he has not been led astray by artificial rules. This belief in the equal moral worth and equal moral authority of every individual was, and I think is, the real source of America's democratic equality, an equality that was far more potent than merely the Lockean idea that everyone started at birth with the same blank sheet. Jefferson's assumption that people were naturally sociable and possessed an innate moral sense had important implications. It lay behind his belief in minimal government, he thought that the government would just get out of the way. People's inherent sociability and moral instinct would create a natural ordering of the society, an ordering that would be free of the confusion and contentions of the past. Many revolutionaries, like Jefferson, believed that government, although perhaps necessary to restrict what wickedness that did exist, was nevertheless the source of most of the social evils in the world, including poverty and all invidious privileges and distinctions. If people were born equal, all superiorities were man-made, culturally constructed, I suppose we would say, then all claims of superiority were vulnerable to challenge. It was these sorts of circumstances that produced the turbulent, the egalitarian world of of post-revolutionary America. Now, Jefferson's idea of equality was terribly permissive, and he and the other revolutionary leaders who invoked it had little inkling of the lengths to which it could or would be carried. It immediately rendered suspect all kinds of distinctions, whether naturally derived or not. By increasing the social scrambling and conspicuous consumption that had been obvious even before the Revolution, Republican equality threatened even to destroy the very conception of a social hierarchy of ranks and degrees, even one naturally achieved. In a free and independent republic, it was said in the 1780s, The idea of equality breathes through the whole, and every individual feels ambitious to be in a situation not inferior to his neighbor. Among Americans, it was said, the idea of inferiority as of pursuing a mean employment or occupation mortifies the feelings and sours the minds of those who feel themselves inferior. Consequently, everyone strives to be equal with those above him in dress, if in nothing else. All claims now of social distinction, not just claims of ancestry or family, were ridiculed and scorned as aristocratic and un-American. Aristocracy, natural as well as artificial, quickly became a pejorative term, at least in the North, as Princeton graduates like Hugh Henry Brackenridge and wealthy merchants like Robert Morris soon discovered. In the 1780s, both Brackenridge and Morris became victims of the egalitarian rhetoric of William Finley, one of the most colorful of the new popular politicians of the post-revolutionary era and one of the great demagogues of, of American history. Finley's origins showed, and conspicuously so. In his middling aspirations, middling achievements, and middling resentments, he re- represented far more accurately what America was becoming than did the college-educated gentry like Jefferson or Adams. In just a few short years in the 1780s, Finley sent Brackenridge scurrying out of politics for the safety of a literary career, where he turned his disillusionment with American democracy into his comic masterpiece, Modern Chivalry. At the same time, Finley turned on Robert Morris, who was one of the most prominent and overbearing of the well-to-do Philadelphia elite who had aristocratic aspirations. During a debate in the Pennsylvania Assembly in 1786, Finley repeatedly baited Morris for his greed and his love of wealth. In reply, Morris tried to stress that social distinctions were not based on wealth alone. Surely, Morris said, persons possessed of knowledge, judgment, information, integrity, and having extensive connections are not to be classed with persons void of reputation and character. But Finley would hear none of this aristocratic pretension. Finally, in exasperation, Morris exploded. If wealth be so obnoxious, he said to Finley, and this is in the assembly, I asked this gentleman, why is he so eager in the pursuit of it? If Morris expected a denial from Finley, he did not get it. For Finley's understanding of Morris's motives was really based on an understanding of his own. Did he love wealth and pursue it as Morris did? Doubtless I do, said Finley. I love and pursue it, not as an end, but as a means of enjoying happiness and independence, though he was quick to add that the amount of his wealth was not at all as great as Morris's was. Not that this made Morris in any way superior to Finley. Indeed, the central point stressed by Finley and the other Western uh, assemblymen in, in the Pennsylvania legislature was that Morris and his patrician Philadelphia crowd were no different from them, were no more respectable than they were. Such would-be aristocrats simply had more money than their neighbors. In America, said Finley, no man has a greater claim of special privilege for his 100,000 pounds than I have for my five pounds. That was what American equality meant, and I think still means. All it was necessary in America to get ahead, it seemed, was enterprise and hard work, not political privilege, not social connections, not polite manners, not genteel knowledge, not even education, at least not a gentleman's liberal arts education. Jefferson's natural aristocrat, to his horror, turned out to be simply someone who could make money. Catherine Sedgwick, daughter of a Tory federalist family, spoke for all of the old aristocracy when she observed of the emerging 19th century entrepreneurial hierarchy, wealth, you know, is the grand leveling principle. It's a great insight that captures, I think, what America uh, has been about. This is what equality in America came to mean, and I think still largely means, as long as we continue to focus on individuals and not, as we have perversely done during the past several decades, on groups. Which is why we continue to put up with great disparities of individual wealth, as long as we think that wealth is fairly earned. This is equality, as no other nation has ever quite had it, and Jefferson had a significant hand in its creation.
0: Back in studio one last time with Nicole Penn. Now, Nicole, I've got one last question, uh, and it has to do with today's fairly vast levels of wealth inequality here in the United States. Now, uh, Jefferson's idea of equality could work either way with regard to wealth inequality because on the one hand, Jefferson felt that the natural aristocracy would naturally lead the most virtuous and talented people to reap the benefits and to rise to the top of the social order, so to speak. But on the other hand, it could, as many have argued even today, impede the realization of future equality, of people trying to rise to the top in the future. So what would Jefferson think about, about today's uh, disparities and
1: wealth? Yeah. Wood's conclusion is very interesting because he, he discusses how you know this belief that – all people have this um, this shared trait that makes them equal, uh, has allowed Americans to be, to A, you know, allowed them to encourage them to uh, participate in conspicuous consumption and to use material gains as a way to distinguish one another in, in a way that that isn't supposed to inspire any shame. Um, and... Again, at the beginning of this, I mentioned that Jefferson actually was not very comfortable with vast wealth inequality. He thought that it was quite detrimental to the cultivation of virtue and natural equality, and he again had tried to – outline some way to redistribute land. I mean, I think the real real thing that he didn't anticipate was that Hamilton would win out in terms of the economic system that would dominate the United States. Uh, Jefferson seemed to believe that land was endless and that everyone would have their plot of land. And the point of the natural aristocracy would really be to um, elevate people to government. But other than that, everyone else's um, social, material levels would be roughly equal to one another. So I think he would – and I, and this is, again, why I say it's kind of interesting that the Democrats have um, abandoned Jefferson because I would think he would look at particularly today's – and it's interesting that Gordon Wood says that, you know, wealth inequality is a problem in 1995. I, if anything, it's intensified since then. So I think he would be um, worried, uh, not happy with the state of things today, but I don't know. Uh, And more than anything else, dismayed that Hamilton's economic vision had won out.
0: Thomas Jefferson believes that the most virtuous and talented people should go and work in uh, public policy and public service and yet remained intensely distrustful of government and everything they do. A man of enduring, endless contradictions and complexity. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. This was wonderful. I learned a lot today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Bradley Lectures podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The Bradley Lectures were given for more than a quarter century at AEI, thanks to the generous sponsorship of the Lynde and Harry Bradley Foundation. AEI senior fellow Carlin Bowman and I hope you enjoy our revival of these lectures. If you do, please show your support by giving us a like and a comment and subscribing to our channel. And stay tuned for new episodes every other Monday, as we bring the wisdom of the recent past to the most pressing issues of the present. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on the Bradley Lectures podcast.